Thanks for listening to the Washington Post Live podcast. We're grateful to have you as a listener, and we want to learn more about your listening habits and how we can serve you better. We're running a survey, and Wednesday, August 10th, is your last chance to share your thoughts and enter a sweepstakes to win a $100 gift card. It shouldn't take much more than five minutes to complete. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. That's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the Washington Post Live podcast. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell. I'm an anchor here at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Today is another edition of Across the Aisle, where we aim to bring members of both parties, Republican and Democrat, to talk about things that they are getting done, things that are passing Congress in a bipartisan manner. Today, we have with us one Republican House member, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, and a House member of the Democratic Party, Representative Annie Custer. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Leanne. And to our audience, feel free to join in this conversation by tweeting at us at Post Live, and we will try to get in your questions. So today we are talking a 30-minute conversation about mental health. Um, but first, I have to talk about news of the day. Um, and I, uh, Congresswoman Custer, I want to ask you about this FBI search of Donald Trump. Are you concerned that this search of Mar-a-Lago is politicizing the FBI? Well, I'm dying to hear Brian's um, <clears throat> experience on that because he's actually, uh, I think, the only member of Congress that served in the FBI, and I really admire his service. Look, this uh, search warrant was signed by a federal judge. And I know that the folks at the Department of Justice are very reticent to get involved in uh, political politicization of the Department of Justice or the FBI. But if a crime has been committed, I think we need to count on our law enforcement officials to get to the bottom of it, to get the evidence of that crime. Uh, no one is above the law. And I think that's the important premise. We don't know all the details yet. More will come. Uh, but I have confidence uh, that this was signed by a federal judge, I believe appointed by the former president, and Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, was appointed by the former president. So this is not political. Congressman Fitzpatrick, um, as the congresswoman said, you are the only member, former member of the FBI. Does the FBI make political decisions well, I didn't experience it, certainly, Lynn, when I was there. That's why I've always been a big supporter of the of the Bureau. Um, however, uh, this is a an unprecedented action, and it better have been met with unprecedented justification. And in order to make that assessment, we need the FBI and the DOJ to address it uh, publicly because there's a lot festering out there, uh, certainly in my community and across America right now. We need to do that because decisions you make in any case, particularly a case of this magnitude, doesn't just impact that case, it impacts cases across all divisions of the FBI. It affects counterterrorism cases, counterintelligence cases, cybersecurity cases. Because the FBI, in order to do their job, in order for the DOD to, to do their job, they need the support of the public. They need the cooperation of the public. 
there's nothing more important uh, as my job as an FBI agent than which was to recruit uh, sources, <clears throat> recruit people that would introduce their undercovers into criminal networks. Uh, and also when you knock on somebody's door, uh, just as a random witness that when they see the FBI credentials and badge that they respect it, they invite you in and they share information with you. When you lose that aspect of the job, it makes our country less safe. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us. Number one, obviously reserve judgment until we know all the facts. But that being said, Leanne, uh, I'm very concerned about this step because it's not just a step for this case. It's, it's a precedent setting step that needs the justification to back it up. Uh, and, and DOJ needs to speak to what that justification is. And I'm concerned uh, as to whether or not they have it at the moment. Do you expect them to? Leanne, is I it common practice I... for them to? I'm sorry, Leanne? I was going to say, is it common practice for the Department of Justice or the FBI to provide justification? Should we expect that <clears throat> soon? Well, I think they need to address whatever they can. Um, certainly, they're not going to release any law enforcement sensitive or classified information. They cannot do that legally. Um, but there are things they can say um, that can at least answer some of the questions around the periphery of this right now that will at least provide some context to what's going on. Um, again, this is not a run-of-the-mill case. This is a, an extraordinary circumstance that I think requires a very different type of response. And Leanne, I think I just want to add yeah. that Brian and I can find common ground even on this. And it is unprecedented. And I think what's unprecedented uh, was this president, uh, the former president, taking the documents to Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, typically these types of things would have been worked out with legal counsel. And I think one thing, um, the president himself, the former president, could make the search warrant public. They have a copy of that. And I think that would go a long way to answering questions about what this is about. But Brian and I certainly can agree this is unprecedented. And I also share his concern not to politicize uh, the FBI. We do need to keep the FBI integrity in mind, uh, the DOJ integrity in mind, but lack of police enforcement of our laws is also a political act. So again, no, no one is above the law. Congressman, I want to ask you about um, a member of the mental health task force. Um, there are four four members who lead this mental health task force, um, you two, and then one is Jamie Herrera Butler of Massachusetts, or I'm sorry, of Washington, and she lost her primary, the result she conceded last night in her primary to someone um, who ran to her right. Of course, she is someone who voted to impeach the former president. Um, she is also someone who voted to certify the election on January 6th. So, Congresswoman, first to you, um, is it a lot of people who take a similar path as the Congresswoman, uh, Jamie Herrera Butler, working across the aisle, voting to certify the election, um, are not going to be back in Congress next year. Are you concerned that it will make it more difficult to find common ground with members across the aisle, not only on issues of mental health, but on other issues too? Well, first, let me just start with my tremendous respect for Jamie. She was a friend, she was a colleague, and Brian and I were both very grateful when she agreed to serve. Uh, we have four co-chairs, David Trone from Maryland is the other, 
Democratic co-chair of our bipartisan addiction and mental health task force. I enjoyed uh, working with Jamie. I enjoy her as a person. My brother lives near her. She and I have had a number of conversations about uh, mental health and uh, substance misuse in her district and in Washington state. And I am concerned about uh, the direction of Congress if um, very extreme people winning primaries end up getting elected to Congress. I think Congress gets more done in the middle with people like Brian and myself and Jamie and David Trone working together. And we're excited to talk with you about the progress that we've made on mental health and addiction. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm disappointed that Jamie just barely, barely uh, didn't, ma didn't make it through that primary. It's a top two system. She came in number three by uh, just literally hundreds of votes. I was watching the count until late into the night, hoping that she would make it. And Congressman Fitzpatrick, um, like Herrera Butler, you are also someone who voted to certify the election on January 6th. Are you concerned that a lot of people who um, refuse to deny the results of the 2020 election are losing their seats? Does it make it harder for you in Congress and to maintain your position? Well, it just it, it amplifies the importance of the work Annie and I are doing across the aisle on this critical issue of uh, addiction and mental health. Um, but uh, to your point, um, Leanne, yes, I am concerned. Uh, two vice chairs of the Problem Solvers Caucus, one on the, uh, on the Republican side, Jamie Herb Butler, she's my vice chair of the Problem Solvers as well, uh, and uh, a Democrat vice chair, uh, Kurt Schrader, both lost their primaries in the past six weeks, one to uh, someone running to Jamie's right, someone running to Kurt's left. So sure, I'm concerned about it because we need bridge builders in Congress. And, you know, we always extend an invitation to everybody, all of our colleagues, to join us in that cause uh, of centrism and not extremism, uh, because that's the only thing that will keep the fabric of our democracy together. Uh, our country survived 246 years. It's the great American experiment. Ben Franklin said to that young paper boy that came up to him uh, after the Constitutional Convention when he said, sir, what kind of government have you given us? He said, Ben Franklin said, a republic if you can keep it because they knew they created this brilliant system of government, but how fragile this system of government was. And the constitution itself is a product of compromise. We forget that. Our country was founded on compromise. Our country can only be sustained by compromise as well. And we need people in Congress willing to do that. I could talk about uh, how Congress has changed in the makeup of Congress all day, but I do really wanna talk about what we are here for, which is the mental health legislation that passed Congress, uh, at least the House earlier this year, with over 400 votes, which is something that doesn't happen very often. Congresswoman Custer, um, you know, what this legislation does, I'm just gonna tick off a couple things. It reduces barriers uh, for mm -hmm. treatment for opioids. Um, it provides Medicaid for uh, access for children in schools to have some mental health coverage. Um, there's grants for depression and suicide screening. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, how important this legislation is and has the country, the United States, not been doing enough in this area of mental health and uh, drug addiction? Well, yes, the answer is we have not been doing enough. And particularly when you add in two and a half years of the COVID pandemic, 
what I'm sure Brian is seeing in his district, certainly what I see in my district, is tremendous anxiety. I call it almost free-floating anxiety right now, where families could not protect their loved ones during the pandemic uh, or took great effort. Here in New Hampshire, uh, 80% of our deaths, we have over 2,000 deaths, were seniors in nursing homes. And the heartbreak that that causes to families knowing that grandparents have died, uh, parents have died. You look at children in schools and the whole issue around vaccines and masking and just trying to keep our families safe. Add to that gun violence uh, in our schools, in our grocery stores, um, online predators. We find there's a great deal of um, influence among teens from online predators, uh, sexual assault in our military and in our colleges and in our schools and in our sports teams. So there's just a lot of anxiety, depression. Um, much of it does relate to trauma. I've also started a bipartisan task force to end sexual violence because of the trauma that uh, can plague people later in life with mental health and addiction issues. So this bill was extremely important before, but even more important coming out of COVID. Congressman Fitzpatrick, the Congresswoman just talked about the COVID pandemic and following up on that, did the government, did the United States, were they attuned early enough into this pandemic of the mental health uh, acts or problems that this pandemic would create? Were they too late to the game? Well, we, we talked about that a lot in our task force. That we always anticipated two phases of COVID, the first phase being the physical health risks and manifestation. And then the second wave, which we are now seeing, uh, are the, the psychological and emotional uh, health consequences because Annie was spot on. I mean, we, we we were making, I mean, we saw a steady increase over decades of both addiction and mental health uh, challenges that we were starting to make some appreciable progress on pre-COVID. We saw some of the metrics start to level out. And when COVID hit, every, uh, every uh, box was checked as far as relapse goes, isolation, job loss, um, lack of availability for treatments, particularly those that were seeking uh, inpatient treatment for from um, both mental health and addiction, those resources were no longer available, and they were facing economic uh, challenges, and they're facing isolation. So, if you have those sort of precursors, and in addition to what Andy's talking about, uh, depression and anxiety amongst especially our kids today is at an all-time high, which is a huge problem. Um, we knew that this was going to be coming. Now, are we behind the eight ball? Yes, just like we were behind the eight ball with COVID-19 and dealing with the physical consequences and getting ahead of the curve from a, from a science standpoint with masking and vaccinations and the like. But now we're dealing with the second equally important phase, and that is a psychological and emotional uh, fallout from COVID-19. Well, Congressman Fitzpatrick, just to follow up on that, how specifically is this legislation that passed? Of course, it hasn't passed the Senate yet, so it's not signed <clears throat> into law. But what will it do to alleviate some of those problems that you just ticked through? A couple of things, starting with destigmatizing mental health and addiction. That is that is a genesis. That's the root cause of all of this. Uh, for so long, uh, people were struggling with addiction and mental health challenges that they were afraid to talk about because it is stigmatized. Uh, in, in this country, we treat uh, uh, illnesses from the neck down very different than we treat illnesses from the neck up. 
And we have to take a whole of body approach. That's step one. And the key to that is destigmatizing, getting into schools early, teaching kids what um, uh, substance use disorder is. It's not a moral failing. It's a it's a genetic uh, issue that people face and mental health challenges. And second, uh, Leanne, is parity. Um, parity in health insurance. If physical therapy is covered, mental health sessions ought to be covered. Uh, parity in schools. If, if our schools are going through phys ed programs, as they should, they should have mental health education as well. We need parity across the board to treat mental health the same way we do physical health. And once we do that, we will destigmatize and it will become a normal part of our healthcare system. Congresswoman Custer, uh, you came to this issue. You have some personal experience uh, with uh, mental health issues in your family. Can you <clears throat> talk about that a little bit and how it has helped to inform you when crafting legislation? Well, I want to say um, I'm not alone in this. In fact, our co-chairs and many, many members that work with us, and Leanne, we have over 148 members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that have been involved with our bipartisan task force. Many have personal experience. In my own case, it's my older brother that got involved with opioids after a series of hip surgeries several years ago. Um, but Brian was spot on when he described the impact of COVID. My brother is in his 70s, and when um, NAAA treatment moved online, he relapsed, and this was very challenging for him. And so uh, we need to destigmatize. We also need to work on the access issues. And a big part of this package of legislation we passed in June was to address how to get medically assisted treatment to people in rural communities, such as the case with my brother in Washington state, um, so that people can get the support and the treatment they need to tackle their substance use disorder and to move forward in recovery. We covered recovery housing in this bill, for example. There was another of the pieces of this comprehensive package that came from our task force, um, making sure that providers are trained but don't have hurdles for uh, prescribing what we call buprenorphine or Suboxone, that type of medication-assisted treatment. All of these pieces, whether it's uh, treatment, whether it's prevention, whether it's long-term recovery, um, each piece is very important. And as Brian says, breaking down the stigma is really one of the biggest pieces. And that's what our task force does, both for our colleagues and as we move forward in the policy. As you mentioned, access is a huge issue also, not just for addiction treatment, but also for mental health too. I, I know people with with means, with resources, and it's even hard for them to uh, find access, especially for children. Um, Congresswoman, I wanna follow up on that a little bit. Um, why is Why did you guys decide to pair two issues that are often looked as separate issues drug addiction, opioid addiction, and mental health into one comprehensive legislative piece and also way to look at this. Was that an important aspect? It, it was something that we learned over the years as we worked on this issue together and in our districts. 
Um, it's called co-occurring illness. And what it is, is that frequently for many people, if not most people, there is an underlying mental health or, or uh, condition that <clears throat> almost leads to the substance use disorder. In other words, people end up self-medicating, if you will. And so there's a behavioral health component to this, as we've mentioned, anxiety, depression, um, but also I mentioned trauma. And what I found over and over again in my district, and I'll give you an example, right before COVID, I visited the women's prison here in New Hampshire, our state women's prison. 100% of the women in our women's prison are survivors of either sexual assault, that was 75%, or domestic violence or abuse in their childhood. And they're dealing with this trauma without getting treatment. They haven't had trauma-informed care, um, either accessing therapy or group therapy. Um, and so they find themselves self-medicating and getting involved with uh, substance use disorder. It can also happen from opioids. And we know from the Purdue Pharma case and for much of the information that's come forward that that's very common for people. So we found that these go hand in hand and they were best addressed together. And I was going to go there, talk about this a little bit down the road, but I'm sorry for the third question in a row, Congresswoman, but since you brought it up, you also have separate legislation about ensuring that prisoners have access to Medicaid so that they can get some access to mental health and drug treatment care. Um, you know, is that is that a problem in our prisons and is that um, exacerbated because there is not a lot of access to help? 100%. And this was a real aha moment for me, Leanne, as I was working on this issue. We have a revolving door where we are not providing sufficient mental health and substance use treatment during incarceration so that when people come out, they tend to go right back to that addiction. They tend to get back into um, whether it, they may be in for selling drugs, for buying drugs, uh, or it may be something related, um, you know, stealing or, or that type of thing. And what we don't do is help them to get better. And I think what Brian and I and the members of our task force have recognized this is just like a medical problem. This is a, a mental health, sometimes physical problem related to addiction that can be treated effectively. But historically, because Medicaid was not available to people during incarceration, they, for 50 years, all 50 states, they haven't had sufficient treatment and therapy. And we all act surprised when people come out. We're not surprised that they still have diabetes. And so what I'm trying to do is provide that healthcare coverage, uh, both mental health and substance use treatment. We have learned that medically assisted treatment is very effective, that people do recover, and they go on to be uh, citizens that are paying their taxes, participating, taking care of their families, and being a part of our economy. And that's where I want to end up.
and Congressman, as a former member of law enforcement, did you see the impacts of that firsthand? And can you describe that? No doubt. Uh, and I applaud Andy for doing this work because it's really, really important. Uh, over 80% of inmates will be released. Uh, the recidivism rate remains high because our prison system in many ways has failed to realize the fact that 80% will be released and they're going to be uh, part of the community again. And, and do we want to prepare them for that or not? And uh, what Annie's touching upon is people that are put in prison that have substance use disorder. Oftentimes it was that substance use disorder that drove them to commit crimes in the first place that landed them there. So we just need to take a very, very smart common sense approach towards how we view the correction system. Um, so and Annie's done a great job with that. I applaud her for doing that and I'm proud to uh, to partner with it on it. But yes, I, I certainly saw that as well. And you know, we in law enforcement, you know, certainly the violations that I worked, um, we saw the impact that unaddressed mental health issues and unaddressed substance use issues had on the law enforcement system, because those were the people that who fought, fell through the cracks, who did not have the support system they needed, ended up on the wrong side of the law and ended up uh, in the law enforcement system and the prison system. So uh, what we try to do and, you know, Annie, along with with Jamie and David Trone, another phenomenal member of our group, uh, are trying to take a holistic view that when we think about healthcare, it's not just physical health, it's mental health. And it's not just physical and mental health, but it's the the social determinants of health. It's that 360 degree paradigm and, and addressing the ripple effect that if you don't address the cause, the root causes of healthcare, both physical and mental, it has a massive ripple effect throughout so many different parts of our life. You have legislation, Congressman, also addressing suicide. So I want to bring in a, uh, a viewer question from Sarah Corcoran from Washington, D.C. asks, in light of the recent launch of 988 as a three-digit code for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, what are your legislative priorities to help implement <clears throat> it nationwide? Or I'm going to add to this a little bit, even more broadly to address uh, the increase of suicides in this country. Yeah, Leanne, so I just uh, left the White House. I was at the signing of the PACT Act, which was a, a tremendous piece of legislation benefiting our veterans. And the president addressed, I believe we're up to 17 veteran suicides every single day. And that's just in our veterans community. It's a huge issue. How, what do we do to, to implement this legislation? Number one, we have to fund it. We have to make sure that the funding resources are there for all um, anybody who's administering this program at the federal, state, or local level. And second, and equally important, we have to market it. We have to let people know that this resource does exist, um, that there is a digit code that they can dial on their phone to get instant help um, and oftentimes life-saving help that they need. So it's incredibly important. It feeds right into the mental health piece that Andy and I are working on. Um, but it's another resource out there for people because isolation so many times it leads to suicide. Um, sometimes people have a support structure. Sometimes they don't. And if we can provide a support structure for people that don't have it, uh, even if we can save one life, it's worth it. Congresswoman, what else does Congress need to do? Well, one of the issues just coming straight out of that, and I used to serve on the Veterans Affairs Committee before I went over to Energy and Commerce and all the healthcare work that we do, um, is that peer support is incredibly effective. And one of the sort of fundamental tenets of our package that we put together that passed the House in June 
um, is to put together treatment modalities that have been successful. So I've talked about uh, medically assisted treatment, also making therapy more accessible and available, and we have to address the workforce issues. So we have some workforce components to this. As more people are calling 988, and thank you to our caller for getting that number out for us, um, we need to make sure that when they're referred for therapy that they can get a timely appointment, that somebody's not telling someone who's suicidal, we can see you in six weeks, but they're saying we can see you tomorrow. And that's incredibly important, getting people in within 24 hours for that first warm handoff, that first contact. So there's a lot more that we can be doing right now. Brian and I are very focused on committing, convincing the Senate to take up our package that passed the House in June um, in September. And we're having productive conversations with our colleague, Senator Patty Murray, who's the chair of the committee over there. I'm sure Brian's talking to his Republican colleagues as well. This is bipartisan, as you mentioned at the outset, such a strong vote in the House of Representatives. I remember jumping up and down saying, that's the most bipartisan vote I've seen uh, in this Congress. And I'm really thrilled with it. Yeah, Congressman Fitzpatrick, who are you talking to in the Senate to get this done? And also, how did so many Republicans sign on to this legislation? What did you do? Well, it's it's just a matter of, I mean, David and Annie and Jamie, I mean, they all do a great job. We talked to our colleagues about this, but it didn't honestly, Leanne, take a whole lot of convincing because I think anybody who's representing their district, spending time in their district sees it. They see it up close and personal. They're hearing the stories. They're going to funerals of people dying of overdoses. They're you know, hearing from constituents who have to travel sometimes 100 miles or more to get access to mental health treatment, uh, where they can go right around the corner if they need to see an orthopedic surgeon. Um, so it, it didn't take a whole lot of work, to be honest with you. Who am I dealing with the Senate? Uh, I talked to Kirsten Cinema all the time about this. Uh, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, they've been my main points of contact on this piece of legislation. Uh, and just like we've gotten a couple of big pieces of legislation across the finish line, the PACT Act, the, uh, the CHIPS Act, uh, we're, we're going to try to drive this now. And uh, we've had a good uh, string of luck over in the Senate uh, getting some of these uh, um, pieces of legislation, enough bipartisan support that it needs. And with those kind of numbers coming out of the House, uh, you know, as Annie referenced, that sends a very strong message to the Senate. And it's a good signal that it will emerge from the Senate. And we are unfortunately out of time. Congressman Fitzpatrick, Congresswoman Custer, thank you both so much for joining me today, talking about this very important issue. Thanks for having us, Leah. And thanks so much for the opportunity. We really appreciate the coverage and want to tell your viewers, call the Senate, tell them to pass this bill. <laughs> thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.